0: Q and A number one was presented by Ron Julian and Jack Crabtree on August third, two thousand fifteen, at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute Reunion to knock in the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College Inc. Two thousand fifteen. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. I'm going to ask the first question, I would like Ron and or Jack to lay out it seems like the similarities in their view are pretty clear, and the differences are subtle. I would like one or both of you guys to lay out the similarities and differences in your
1: two views. Could I say something about that? <laughs> I heard you say three things. One of them was the, how charitable you were to the other commentators. Perhaps that's true, although I would say it depends on who you're talking about. That is, some commentators that I have read seem to me to be, yeah, it's just I have to find a way to defend this being Jesus. There are other commentators that I have read who acknowledge that it might go the other way. They understand the difference between those. They will present, like someone like D.A. Carson is like this to me. He acknowledges the different sides. He can show why you might go one way or the other. And in the end, he goes towards it describing Jesus. But I respect the process. I don't think he's being, he's not trying to be tendentious. inches. He's not trying to sell a particular thing. He just, that's where he landed. I think he's wrong, but okay. The second thing that you described was that the significance of the similarities like uh, the birth of the child and the language of virgin and so forth. You said that there was a difference between the way we took that, but as I heard you talk about it, You talked about the heuristic sort of thing where the person might look at those similarities and use that as a way of, oh, look, there's a similarity in these ideas and I can bring that out. I don't think that's any different than what I'm saying. And then you acknowledge we might look at God as the author and say that God might actually intend us to see that he has built that pattern into things. And if you're willing to say those two things, then I don't think there's any difference between the way we're seeing it. And then the third one was whether Emmanuel, God is with us, and Yeshua, Yahweh saves, how much distance there is between those, whether those are similar things or different Mm -hmm. things. And it is true, I think they're saying essentially similar things, but I think I understand them a little differently than you do, particularly where Matthew says that God will save his people from their sins, I'm not really understanding that as being fundamentally talking about the atonement or the basis for sins or that kind of stuff, but I'm seeing that in the Old Testament sort of context in the same way that Emmanuel would have been understood. If you look like at the Isaiah situation, it's the sins of the people that have led to this situation where God, it looks like God's promises are not going to last, so I'm taking God will save them from their sins as being God is going to solve the problem of their sins so that his promises will come true. So I see Emmanuel and Yeshua as having a similar kind of Old Testament sort of flavor to it. And that's all that I noticed of Mm -hmm. the things that you said where we disagreed.
2: Yeah, we basically agree.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What date is it? Write this down.
0: Hi, I have a question for Jack Mm -hmm probably come down pretty hard on me, but when I was listening to the different forms of interpretation, and I agree that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, so it has to be rational, but wouldn't you say that there were different aspects of interpretation the way they looked at the Bible then than the way that we look at the Bible today, and I think that scripture would make sense to them, and if we understand those those uh, approaches to interpretation, they would make sense to us. I'm sorry, which passage? You were talking about how some of the passages, if they were some of the uh, methods of interpretation, that they were spurious or specious. But if we look at them in the milieu of that day, it was how rabbis did interpret scripture. And as we look back, we have a different approach. If we see that interpretation, it would make sense to us too. So Is that something you... Yeah, no, I don't have
2: any problem with that. There's a difference between rationality and rational style. Just because somebody has a different rational style doesn't make what they're doing irrational. It just means that it's a cultural phenomenon. I've learned Mm -hmm. to use my language in a particular way, to put my thoughts together in a particular way, to form my arguments in a particular structure and so on. As long as they are operating as an intelligent... Human being with integrity, it doesn't matter how odd that might seem to be, it's still rational. What I have a problem with is when it's literally, truly irrational, and then people defend it as saying, hey, yeah, but it's inspired or something like that. Yeah, as long as, and maybe we could have discussions about is this a rational method or not, and maybe we would or wouldn't agree on that, but I wouldn't, just because something is a different style doesn't automatically put it in the category of irrational, in my mind.
1: Carl was very helpful to me when he was here last time in talking about the approach in the Midrash, where he looked at places that we might look at and think initially, this is a very strange way to read the Old Testament, but then argued that when you get back into it and look at what they're doing, it's actually a reasonable way, it's just an unusual way of expressing a reasonable approach to this passage. So thought what he was saying was very interesting and a lot of the things that we look at in the Jewish commentaries that we might think initially that's strange if we were to actually take them seriously and look at what they were doing we could ultimately say oh I see what they're saying and agree with it the book that Jack was talking about he was looking at some of those approaches and he was rejecting them as being rational he was looking at that and saying we couldn't do that That's not a reasonable way to approach the Scriptures, but Matthew can do it because he's inspired. So he may have been wrong, I think, in both ways. That is, he may have been misunderstanding the nature of the approach that the rabbis were taking and rejecting it as being irrational when actually there was more to it than you might think. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at what he was doing. But I would say, I'm kind of reiterating what Jack said, Some of the style of the rabbinic commentary may seem unusual to us, but we need to take it on its own terms to decide whether it's actually doing something that's legitimate or not. This author was saying the approach that Matthew is taking is not a rational way to proceed, but he's an apostle so we can get away with it. That's what we're saying. No, that's not true. If it really is irrational, then we can't accept it. But it may be that the approach of the Jewish teachers of the time is more rational than we're recognizing it without taking the time to look at them and give them credit.
2: And I don't know much about, I don't know anything about the history of Jewish interpretation of the scriptures. But just thinking abstractly here for a second, I do know something about Christian interpretation of scripture. And it gets wild, crazy, and completely invalid. Well, I don't have any reason to think that I shouldn't be just as critical of the history of Jewish interpretation of scripture as I am of the history of Christian interpretation of scripture. Human beings being human beings, we do crazy things. And we do things that are invalid and and illegitimate. So we have to evaluate them all as we go. Some of it is fine, some of it's probably not so fine.
3: Related to that and to your comment, making stuff up, one of the things that I find difficult in the Old Testament is Determining what kind of genre that I'm working with and how that genre works. Because, and I'll be talking about some historical narrative tomorrow, and it is sometimes hard to tell when you are interpreting it and when you are making stuff up because you're working from small clues in a genre that is not something that I am immersed in. It's something that I'm kind of picking up on and trying to piece together how this genre works, and I'm not sure what the rules are with respect to that genre. So it's hard to know when you're making stuff up and when it's a real phenomenon. I remember years ago when I first started looking at Jewish commentators, and Umberto Casuto was the first one that I was introduced to, and he would make a big deal about a particular word choice in a narrative passage, and the first time I saw that, I thought, this is ridiculous. He's making too much out of this one, this particular word choice. And I have since come to the conclusion that each word needs to be paid attention to and needs to be accounted for. And so I have shifted in the way that I look at that Old Testament narrative. And it seems to me that across the board, we need to figure out, that's part of our job now, is to figure out What kind of genres are we looking at? What are the rules on which they operate? And therefore, the rules by which we need to interpret them. And that's a big task.
0: Ron, I have a question for you, just to kind of clarify what you said earlier. When you described the two different, well, the story of the mother with the children, and you described the package, Um, the first package and the second package, you referred to that as a coincidence that they were similar? Are you suggesting that the Isaiah passage and the Matthew passage, that they're a coincidence that they're similar? Or is there any, is there necessity to that?
1: Right. No, not necessarily. This is related a little bit to the issue that I was talking about, the potential disagreement between Jack and myself. In my story, it couldn't have been anything other than coincidental. There is no significance to the string that the lawyers used to wrap the will, and the fact that the uncle had wrapped his Christmas package that he sent to them in string, there is absolutely no connection between those things that is significant, but the mother was using that as a hook to highlight the similarities between them. I think at times it depends on each individual case. As I've been looking at Matthew, for example, we'll talk about this more with one of the passages we're going to look at, but at this point I think that the angel sent jesus joseph and mary and the infant to egypt by god's instruction i think if this sounds really strange but it was deliberate on god's part to do that that is god sent them to egypt in such a way that he's saying and actually i'd kind of like you to pay attention the fact that i sent them to egypt because then the significant role that egypt played in the history of israel there's this sort of resonance between what's happening with jesus and what's happening with israel and their going into egypt and coming out of egypt but is it just a coincidence that that happened in the sense that matthew just noticed that there was a similarity between that in that particular case i am inclined to think that god meant us to see the similarity just like when Jesus goes into the wilderness and he responds to Satan's temptations by quoting the sermon that Moses gave in the wilderness. God set that up deliberately. He wants us to notice the parallels. So I think that there are times when the connection we're drawing is actually, it's legitimate to say it really looks like God is hammering home this connection. He wants us to see it. He has set it up to make it look, to make it clear that there is this resonance of ideas between these two things so it's kind of like the author saying you know places where the author really pushes the symbolism where you know jack talks about the english teachers who go away saying i didn't see any of that stuff but sometimes an english teacher will say something about symbolism or a repetition of ideas or something in a text and you say you know i think they're right because that really does seem to be deliberate on part of the author so i'm just holding out the possibility that we could look and say that's deliberate on god's part in the sense that he wants me to conclude something from the fact that there's this similarity i also think it's possible that the biblical author might just himself note there is this similarity here and highlight it and use it not necessarily saying god did this deliberately to send this message but i'm using this similarity to send this message so i think both of those are possible i didn't mean to suggest that it's always a coincidence Or never a coincidence. I mean, nothing is a coincidence with God. I mean, he's the author of the whole thing. But can I say with confidence, he wants me to look at that and see the message he's sending? Or is it legitimate to say, in this case, Matthew sees theological similarity between these two things, and hey, we have this incident that seems to coincidentally be in common with both of them. I'm going to use that coincidence to make my theological point. Is that something that Matthew could do? And I think, yeah, that's something that Matthew could do. But he may actually be saying, look at what God's doing here. He's done this on purpose. He's sending a message. Let's look at what that is. Both of those are possible.
2: Let me hitchhike on that. Back to your question. When people talk about interpretive methods, I'm not sure they're always careful to distinguish. They're actually talking about all the different ways people use the scripture. And like Ron was just describing, if the biblical author is seeing a connection and making something of it, that's fine. But they're not saying, thus saith the Lord, here's what the scriptures teach, dig it. What they're saying is, I'm an apostle, dig it. (laughs) I'm telling you that this is how it works. He's exploited the text without interpreting the text. Is that valid? Sure. It's valid, but we need to keep clear on where does the authority lie? Who am I trusting now, the scriptures or the apostle as an apostle? If an apostle wants to exploit the text, in Galatians, Paul makes up an allegory. He just makes it up. But he tells you he's making it up. So he's not interpreting the scripture there. He's making a point on his own authority as an apostle who understands the gospel, and he's using this particular device, rhetorical device, to do that.
4: We discussed this a little bit. Our group was uh, David and Charlie's group, and so I, I had asked at that time about how they discussed the Torah and the Tanakh and everything at that contemporaneous when Matthew was writing. And David had pointed out that they weren't really keeping track about how things were taught at that time. Am I characterizing that correctly? Okay. So, kind of tagging on that to somewhat, now that you guys spoke and you brought up chapter 9, for unto us, a child is born. Is there any kind of writing or critiques or analysis that's been done to show that when Matthew was writing that, since there weren't chapters and verses, that he was also thinking, pulling that into the poor unto us, along with a virgin, the 714. Does that question make sense, or have I really messed it up? So is
2: he interpreting Isaiah 7 in the light of Isaiah 9? Is that what you're... Is he connecting them? Yeah, when
4: Matthew's referring to that, is he thinking? Yes, because I don't know how the first-century Christians, the apostles, because I'm not the Torah, Tanakh, as far as how they studied it, but I know there were no verses and chapters. And so would the book of Isaiah just have been something that he was so familiar with that that would have all been part of his thinking about, we know that this wonderful counselor child is going to be born and he'll be the Prince of Peace and the Eternal Father.
2: Yeah, I would find it completely unthinkable that he wouldn't be familiar with that and that he wouldn't connect that with the Messiah. I don't know how he Could possibly miss that. On the one hand, on the other hand, does he make that so much a part of the same prophecy as Isaiah seven that could we use as an argument for this must be talking about Jesus in Isaiah seven because Isaiah nine is? I don't think so. Okay, I think he would separate them.
1: He would connect it surely, but the question is how would he connect it? Yeah, and I'm thinking, and I think Jack is thinking that he would connect it through the concept of Emmanuel, that God is with us, and that's not a small concept. It's a concept that starts with the fact that the Assyrians are not going to ultimately destroy the southern kingdom, but it ultimately culminates in the promises that the Messiah will come. So he's certainly seeing that. That all relates, we all talk very rightly about reading things in context, but one thing in a context and another thing in a context can be connected in a lot of different ways. The fact that he's talking about the child in seven and a child in nine It could be that it's the same child, but we can think of lots of different ways that he could be talking about one child here and another child here, and they might be different children, they might be related children. There's all kinds of different ways that it might happen. So it's not an automatic thing that they would be the same child just because they're in the same context. We have to look at the flow of thought. How does he put it together in the end? And we're saying that Matthew would have done that, that Matthew is a careful student of the Old Testament and would relate chapter 9 of Isaiah with chapter 7 in Isaiah in an intelligent way.
2: So, for you
1: guys, so why is Isaiah 7, 10 through 16 just not found in the Pentateuch or the Haftor? It's just left out. In the Pentateuch? Uh-huh. I'm not sure I understand oh, your question. The it's the Torah portions and the half Torah, just the, the readings that go with it. But Isaiah 7, 10 through
2: 16 is not found in there. It just stops at 9 and picks up at 17.
1: <laughs> so why is that? I, I have no I idea. I don't know. Okay, just ask. What are you thinking?
0: I think that it's too close to the whole Yeshua Savior
1: point of view. But Okay, so you're thinking that the Jewish scholars who put that together have deliberately left it out because they think it sounds too much like Jesus. Yes, yes I do. Okay, well that can go either way from my perspective. That may very well be true, but the fact is that a lot of Christians do take it as a direct prophecy of the virgin birth. So that would be a good reason if you thought this was a tool that people that I disagree with are using to make a point, they might look at that and say, this is an illegitimate tool. They're misinterpreting it, but they use it so often, I'm just going to leave it out so it's not a problem. That's a possibility. Or it's a possibility that they would look at that and say, oh my gosh, that's a prediction of Jesus, we have to take that out. But either of those is possible, so I don't know that it says ultimately what they were thinking about what that passage says. You understand, I'm not against, I believe in prophecy in the Bible, I mean predictive prophecy. I believe that there are things in the Old Testament that specifically refer to the Messiah, like 9 in Isaiah is a specific prediction of the Messiah. And I have no problem with 7.14 being a specific prediction of the Messiah, if it is. I'm just saying at this point, I'm having a little hard time seeing it that way. And I think that it's clear that Matthew sometimes does other things besides seeing things as predictions. So this seems like an example of that sort of thing to me. But if I could come to understand how it's a prophetic prediction of Jesus, I'd be first in line. I have nothing against that at all. The more the merrier. I'll take as many as I can get. So I just want to try to understand the scriptures on their own terms. And ultimately, that's what it means to see the Bible as the authority is I need to let it tell me what it's doing. So that's what we're all here for, is we're just trying to understand what is the Bible itself doing. So if I'm looking at a passage and I can't figure it out interpretively,
3: and I don't know if this next sentence is going to make sense, but I think it's true, even though I can't quite exegete it, maybe that's what I'm looking for. So what is that? What am I doing there? Am I believing something that's true without really having a reason to believe it's true? Or am I... Maybe in a larger sense, having a trust in the scriptures as a whole and saying, this is where I start, that they are articulating something that's true. And I just don't know how to interpret this passage to kind of get there.
1: Yeah, on very simple terms. You can imagine there's somebody whose integrity and expertise in an area has been demonstrated to me time and time again, and I just have great confidence in what they have to say, especially when we're talking about a certain thing. And then they say something that I don't get. I just don't even know what they mean. It's not irrational for me to think. I don't say... Okay, I'm going to withhold judgment on whether this person is worth listening to and likely knows what they're talking about and so forth because I don't understand this sentence. I say I have plenty of reason for trusting this person and thinking they know what they're talking about. It's possible that this might be gibberish, but I think I'm going to withhold and wait until I can see whether I figure it out. But in the meantime, I still have confidence that the person knows what they're doing. So the reasons we have for having confidence in the Bible, this is something that Jack, when he talked about inerrancy, In our history, I've known Jack many, 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 many years. And back when I first met Jack and he was teaching, he was arguing for the inerrancy of the Bible. And I was a little snot-nosed new Christian who thought, oh, I'm much too sophisticated to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. That's what ignorant, gullible people think. I was a Christian, but I hadn't got that spot. So I used to argue with Jack about one of many arguments that I have lost with Jack over the years. But he said back then, this was a very long time ago, that we don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible because we have interpreted every bit of it and proved that every statement in it is true. In a way, you don't need an authority if I'm going to go and I'm going to prove that all this stuff is true and then I go and look in my authority and say, yeah, it passes the test. I didn't even need the Bible because I just figured it all out and I happen to agree that the Bible's right about this stuff. There comes a point at which I accept the authority of the Bible because... There's a whole set of things that make sense to me, that God exists and that God is like the God that I see reflected in the scriptures. And then I look at the scriptures, and like Jack said, Jesus seems to make statements that indicate a very high confidence in the truth of the scriptures. And so I put all that together and I say, I think it's very rational and reasonable for me to put my confidence in these scriptures. And I look at some things and I understand them and I say, you know, this just reinforces my confidence in the scriptures. And I look at other things and I say... I don't know what that is. I don't understand what this is. But I still have confidence in the scriptures because I have all these reasons for having that confidence, reasons that I can articulate to myself and reasons that I may not be able to articulate to myself. But it's not irrational to think this thing that I don't yet understand will ultimately prove to be something that I can put my confidence in if and when I ever do come to understand what it is it's talking about. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's the way our minds work. We couldn't even function. If every time I came to something that was questionable, I threw out all my confidence in everything. I have to go back to square one. Oh, I thought that table had a roll that rolled under there, but it's not there. I have to doubt my knowledge of my existence. I thought one thing was true, and it turned out another thing is true. I can't believe that two plus two is four. I have to prove it all over again. We don't do that. (laughs) We keep our construction intact until we have good solid reasons for thinking i'm looking at this wrong and i need to change my mind. So, i don't know why i said that this is all jack. Everything i just said was stuff that i've heard jack say. So, hey, let's make this the last
0: question of the day. This may be a little off topic, but what do you do with genesis and creation accounts and scientific arguments against some of the
2: belief theories? Did you say the scientific arguments?
1: You mean like arguments for evolution and that kind of thing or the age of the universe and that kind of thing?
2: Well, David has convinced me that it goes back to genre. What kind of genre are we dealing with? And I'm talking especially about the first half of the first creation account. That that's not history. That is more like poetry. And if you stop to think about it, I could have written that. I wasn't there, but I could have written that. Because I think what he's doing is he's looking at, as an ordinary person, looking at the creation. What is there? There's birds, there's fish, there's animals, and there's stars and stuff in the sky. And he gives an account in poetic form of how each of those things created by God has their domain, has their place. And then it fits mankind into that. And then it's structured in a way that's kind of repetitious in a poetic kind of way. So there's nothing about the first creation account that would suggest that we're having a historical account of how the world came into being. I think the purpose of the poem is to say, what's the relationship between the world and God? And the relationship is, there ain't nothing in the world that wasn't created by God. Everything here was put there, created, put in its place by God, and he gave it its domain, and he gave it its boundaries, and set it all up, and structured it. And you wouldn't have to have some kind of long-term tradition of an eyewitness of the creation, passing that down to be able to write that. All you'd have to do is be an ordinary observer of the world who wanted to make the theological point that everything you see is a product of the creative activity of God, and you could have written that poem. Now, it's a very exalted and unique view of God because it's unlike all the polytheism of all the nations around So it's very unique theological insight that's embodied in that. But I don't think it's anything other than just making the theological point, it all comes from God, without even addressing the question of how did God do it? How did it come from God?
1: Okay, so I'd like to back up a step from that and make a comment. I think this is actually very important. It doesn't solve the specific problem, but it's something I think that we really need to think about as we try to sort things out, especially in our culture. Our belief is that the Bible is true, and if the Bible is true, then the things that it asserts are true are true in reality. It matches the way the world is. So that means that I expect that what the world is and what the Bible tells me the world is, that those things match up, number one. Secondly, the way we interpret evidence. Scientists go out and they look at fossils and layers of dirt and they take readings from the stars and so forth and students of God and the Bible go and read the text and they interpret it and they try to understand what's happening. But on both sides of this, there is interpretation happening. So, and what affects interpretation is our worldview, the way we think about things. So my attitude towards the issue of, say, something like evolution or the evidence for evolution or something like that is, okay, on the one hand, I do not want to be a person who ignores reality. I do not want to push the evidence aside and say, I don't care what I see in the world. I just believe the Bible. That's not going to work in the end. They have to work together. But... I recognize, because I've seen it, I've seen it in the field that I've worked more in, the study of the Bible and biblical history and background and so forth. I've seen how deeply the worldview of the person who's doing the study affects the conclusions that they come to. So I can't help noticing that the people who really push the idea of evolution, are taking the evidence. But if you ask them, if you get a chance to actually look at what is the worldview that you're looking at this with, they will sometimes acknowledge it is impossible to have a scientific worldview and have any room for God. If you allow that God has anything to do with what's in the world, then science is gone, we can't know anything. So their operating assumption is I must be able to explain everything I see in terms of the other things in the world. If I see a fossil, I need to be able to explain that fossil in terms of the creature that gave birth to it and the one that gave birth to it before that and so forth. So I can say to the scientist, I agree that we ought to look at the evidence. We don't want to put our head in the sand and ignore what's out there. But my question is, what does the evidence lead to and what assumptions do I arrive when I look at it if you're telling me that you have already decided that it, there is no God it is illegitimate to bring God into the picture anytime that you look at the evidence out there then my response is well of course you've arrived at a random godless process of evolution because you decided that God wasn't there to begin with. What if we look at the evidence and we leave open, we leave room for the God who created everything? Now what sort of a conclusion am I going to come to? I'm not a paleontologist. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know where it would go. But I need to evaluate my worldview. When I look at the evidence of fossils and so on, I need to think, What assumptions am I bringing to this as I conclude what the evidence says? I need to do that when I look at the Bible. I need to think, what are my assumptions? What is leading me to interpret it the way I do? And I'm expecting, ultimately, that these two things will come together. Maybe the age of the world is younger than it looks out here because I am being tendentious in the way I interpret the evidence. Or maybe the age of the world is the way it looks when I look at the fossils out here because I'm misunderstanding what Moses was doing in Genesis. Both of those are possibilities. But on both sides, I have to think, am I understanding this right? Am I reading Genesis right? Am I reading the fossils right? And that's a difficult thing to do because in our world, most of the people who are involved in these things are fiercely committed to a particular worldview that they will fight to the death for and read into everything they do so it's difficult to say the scientist tells me oh the science is settled on this we know that evolution happened like this i don't feel embarrassed to say well given the fact that you've already decided that there is no god It seems to me that it's worth going back and looking at the evidence again because I don't start with that assumption, and that's not necessarily the place to start. So sorry, that's a long answer, but our assumptions play such a big role. That's why I don't get freaked out by scientists who say, oh, you Christians, you're just hiding your head in the sand. I say, well, somebody's hiding their head in the sand. might be me, but it might be you. Okay.